You turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John chapter 5. If you are a visitor with us, again, we welcome you. We're very thankful to have you this morning. And I see many of you out there. My name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here at Ephesus Church. And it is our common practice to preach through books of the Bible, although when we finish 1 John, we will be doing something else for a few weeks. But we find ourselves toward the end of the book of 1 John. We are in chapter 5, and this morning we will be looking at verses 18 through 20. I've entitled my sermon this morning, These Things We Know. And the key words for our worshipers in training, our children, are evil, understanding, and true. So let us begin by reading these three verses, beginning in 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And as we... Near the end of this great epistle of 1 John, I've thought of how remarkable it is to see how often John uses that word know throughout his letter. If you were to read carefully through this letter with a pencil and draw a line under it, every time you saw this word, you would be amazed. Sometimes it's subtle, but it's in there. And in the face of false teaching... John is providing assurance to the believers that as he states in verse 13 of chapter 5, which is the summary for this entire book, that you may know that you have eternal life. Did you hear it? That you may know. What a great reality. We may know that we have eternal life. And yet, in our age of doubt and skepticism, many would say that this certainty in knowing that we have eternal life is presumptuous. But the Word of God tells us we can know. Therefore, to cast doubt on that, that we can know that we have eternal life, is actually what is presumptuous, because it is not believing in the truth of God. So how glorious for us is that, that we can know that we have eternal life in Christ. Amen. This is an eternal stronghold for the chain of our anchor. This is a great foundation to build our eternal hopes on. It can be trusted and it will not be clouded with the doubts of unbelief and skepticism that are so common amongst our neighbors and unfortunately that have crept into many of us and our way of thinking. So John is wrapping up his letter with a few summary statements of these things we know to be true. He has laid them out all throughout the letter and here in verses 18 through 20 he brings them all together. 
I've broken these verses down into three truths that we're going to look at one at a time that John has taught us through this letter. We know that, number one, true believers do not live in a pattern of sin. We know that, number two, we are from God and the world is held in the power of Satan. And number three, we know that Jesus opened our eyes. So we begin with number one. True believers do not live in a pattern of sin. Look again at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. The true Christian does not habitually slip into sin. Because as we see John articulating here in the second part of verse 18, Jesus keeps us and protects us from the evil one. Our protector, Jesus, is stronger and mightier than our enemy, Satan. There are two dangers when it comes to thinking about Satan and our understanding of him and how he functions in the world. The first danger is to assume that he is not real. To assume that to talk of Satan is to talk of some sort of idea that insinuates evil. Or to suggest that evil is simply present in the world. But that Satan is not an actual, real, evil angel at work in the world today. This is a great error. And it is in direct contradiction to the Scriptures. And a very, a very dangerous frame of mind to be in. The opposite error, which I probably hear more often in people's talk, is to believe that Satan is so powerful that we cannot resist him. I think many people have in mind this idea that Satan is an equal opposing force to Jesus. And that the fight promoters stood back and looked at the two and decided this is going to be a good matchup. They have the same reach. They have the same fighting skills. They're both seasoned. They have a lot of knockouts. They're both bringing some pretty heavy power to the ring. This is going to be a good fight. So then Jesus and Satan are equally opposing forces where one fights for good and the other fights for evil. But you see, the error in thinking this is that it too is contrary to the Scriptures. It is very clear in the Bible that in the end, Jesus wins. Not because He fought harder, Not because he went 12 rounds and came out on top by the judges scoring. No, he wins because he was and is always in control. This is greatly comforting. Yes, Satan is alive and active and very, very cunning and very powerful in this world. But if you are a true Christian, you have a greater hope and assurance. Christ is King, Christ is Victor, and is not in the business of trying to defeat Satan because he already has. Satan is on a leash and is only given as much leash as God allows him in order that God's purposes will be fulfilled for His own glory. So many will ask, of Christians, is it possible to be possessed by Satan? 
Is it possible to be subverted by Him? In the end, we must cling to the promise of Christ. In John chapter 10, verses 28 through 30, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father am one. How greatly reassuring this is. How hope-filled this is. How gracious of God this is that we that He would not turn us over to the evil one, but that He would protect us and keep us and give us 100% certainty that there is no way that we will ever be taken by Satan if we are truly in Christ. That's amazing. So back up again to the beginning of verse 18. We see John articulating the fact that we will not keep on sinning if we are born of God. John addressed this before in 1 John chapter 3, verses 6 and verse 9. No one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in Him, and He cannot keep on sinning because He has been born of God. So what is John saying? That Christians will not sin? No, by no means. In fact, he wrote earlier in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So John is intimately aware of the sin in our lives because he needs to look probably no further than his own life to understand the constant battle against the flesh. What John is saying is that no one who is truly born of God continues in habitual sin, living in open rebellion to God, unwilling to repent when confronted and seeing no reason to turn from their sins. As Christians, we will sin. There's no doubt about it. We do it all the time. You've already done it this morning. Because we are still living in a fleshly body in this evil world. But when we do sin, as those who have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we will be convicted of that sin. We will have no desire to continue in that sin. And we will be willing to do whatever it takes to purge ourselves of that sin in our lives. We will make war against our sin because we would rather die than bring dishonor to Christ Jesus our Lord. Charles Spurgeon wrote, We understand by this, not that believers are perfectly free from sinning, but that they do not sin habitually, willfully, and openly as the unregenerate do. Their lives are holy, And when faults occur, they grieve over them. The river of their lives runs toward righteousness. And though there are eddies in it, these do not affect the main current. I believe that one of the reasons that some people suffer from extended times of darkness in their lives is the unwillingness of their heart 
to renounce some cherished sin. Jesus and the Apostle Peter and King David all spoke of how unconfessed sin hinders our joy in God. Jesus said in Matthew 5, If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So you see, we quench the very joy of fellowship with God while we refuse to confess our offenses. Our offenses to man. Peter related this to the marriage relationship and said that if a husband sins against his wife, his prayers will be hindered. If we want the joy of Christ, we must not make peace with our sins. We must make war. Listen to the experience of David that comes from unconfessed and unforsaken sin in his life. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. These words are full of hope. We can hold fast to our sin and keep it secret. And the result of that is that we groan all day long in darkness. Or we can confess it and experience the stunning experience of the great man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And the almost incredible hope of confessing and renouncing sin is that the Lord does not then rub it in our face, but He cancels it. He does not count it against us. Why? Well, we know how God can do that with justice. It is because of Christ who bore the wrath for that sin so that we don't have to. The accounts are settled. We're paid up. Therefore, we should not fear to confess and let go of any cherished sin. The shame will not haunt us. It will not walk with us. Christ clothes us in His own righteousness. This is how He protects us. Namely, by having already paid for the sins of His people on the cross, that they will not die, but live forever and ever in His eternal presence to worship Him with an abundance of joy. So how do you know if someone is a true believer? You look at their life. And if in their life there is a constant pattern of habitual, unconfessed sin that is virtually unbroken, you can be very certain that that person is still in bondage to sin and not yet subservient to Christ. The one who is born of God does not continue in a pattern of sin. 
In chapter 3, verse 4, John wrote, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Notice two things. First, he's talking about those who make a practice of sinning. They are habitual sinners. Secondly, notice the main thrust of what John is writing here is that sin is incompatible with the law of God. When a person becomes a Christian, they say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, Oh, how I love your law! You see, the Christian cannot habitually live in violation to God's law because sin is incompatible with the law of God. It is lawlessness. Sin is also incompatible with the work of Christ. Christ appeared in the world in order to take away sin. So, a life of continuous, unrepentant sin is a life without Christ. But remember, it's not perfection that John is talking about. John is not saying that Christians are perfect. I know my heart well enough to know that we are all far from it. But he's talking about direction. What is the direction of your life? What is the pattern of your life? If it is righteousness, it will break any pattern of habitual sin. But please don't miss the beauty of what John is getting at ultimately in this verse. He who was born of God protects him. That is, Jesus protects the one who does not keep on sinning. In other words, Jesus keeps His people. Jesus keeps us from being held by Satan and He keeps us from ever falling back into sin's dominion in Satan's kingdom. He can turn Satan loose in our lives like He did with Peter. Luke 22, He allowed Satan's temptation to overcome Peter. He denied Christ three times knowing that in the end He would come out converted and more able to encourage the brethren. He can let Satan have at Job and know that Job's faith will not fail. He can send the Apostle Paul a messenger from Satan, a thorn in the flesh, and know that in the midst of it all, Paul will only be humbled, which is good for Paul and good for the service that Paul renders to Christ, and that he will find spiritual power in his own weakness. In John chapter 6, we have the amazing words of Jesus when he said, All that the Father gives shall come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never turn away, but to receive him and raise him on the last day. In other words, none of God's children fall through the cracks. Not one true Christian falls back into the hands of Satan. That's why the book of Jude in verse 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you, so together we see 1 John 5.18 that Jesus protects us. And now we see Jude saying to Him who is able to keep you. In other words, and here's the great truth, 
He not only wills to do it, He is able to do it. And He does do it. He keeps you from stumbling and will make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless and with great joy. He is committed to keeping us. Therefore, we know that no one who is born of God will fall back into a pattern of sin, which describes the reason why one who lives in a pattern of habitual sin is not born of God. What about if someone does appear to be born of God? They're in the church. They're involved in teaching Sunday school. They feed the homeless. They give money to missions. They were baptized. They've always been a part of the church. And then they fall back into an unbroken pattern of sin and later deny the faith. Well, John addressed this in chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. That's it. It's that simple. Look, it doesn't matter if I was born in the baptismal pool and I came out of the water and said, Jesus Christ is my Savior. And when I was ten, I made bricks by hand to build the church building and I paid to send ten missionaries all over the world and paid all the money to support the mission, the missions and the ministries of a 1,500 member church. It doesn't matter if I turn and begin living a life of unrepentant sin in complete rebellion against God. It doesn't matter what I did externally that makes it look like I was in the work of advancing the kingdom of God because internally I remain dead in my transgressions and sins and I was never a child of God. But a true child of God is kept, is held by Christ Himself who never allows the evil one to lay hold on His own. He can come after you, but He will not succeed. He couldn't succeed with Peter or Job or Paul. And if you're a true child of God, He will not succeed with you because you belong to Christ Jesus now and forever. Amen. Number two, this we know that we are from God and the world is held in the power of Satan, verse 19. Let's read it again. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The world sits in the lap of the evil one like a baby cradled asleep in the arms of Satan. But we, God's people, are not in the embrace of Satan. We are in the embrace of God. There are two realms here, namely the world and the people of God. So while those in the world walk with Satan, those who belong to God were bought with a price and are redeemed forevermore. 
Remember chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. We have eternal life. We have divine access to the throne. We have great confidence on the day of judgment as we stand before the King, not because we have anything to boast of in our own right, but because we have been reconciled back to God because of His grace and for His glory. Therefore, we have triumph over sin. We belong to God. And that is in direct opposition to everything and everyone around us in the world. They do not have eternal life. They have no access to God through any prayer. They are dominated by evil and they belong to Satan just like each and every one of us once did. And certainly some of you sitting in here today still do. Might I plead with you to believe on Christ? The Scriptures command you to repent and believe the Gospel. Put your full trust and allegiance in Christ. Embrace Christ as your ultimate treasure. He lived a perfect life. He died a sinless death taking on the full wrath of God so that those who by grace through faith believe on Him will not spend eternity under His wrath, but rather in His warm embrace, worshiping before the throne with a great multitude from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people. So I bid you, friends, if you do not know Christ, if you do not live and breathe every breath of your life for Christ, come to Him. Experience everlasting joy in the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Do not live with satisfaction in the things of this world. Do not live seeking to find your joy in the things that this world has to offer. Because in the end, John tells us in chapter 2, it's all passing away. And in the end, it's you standing before God. That's it. Will you have confidence because you know that you are from God? Or will you seek to run and hide because you are of the world, living in the power of the evil one? I fear that there are some here this morning who think that they will have confidence when, when they really will not because they have been so cunningly deceived by the evil one that they believe that they do have a right standing before God when in all reality they are workers of lawlessness. Listen, if this is you and you know this, I'm pleading with you to repent of your sins 
and believe on Christ because the wrath of God is coming. And you will have nothing of your own to show God as worth if you do not have Christ. Does your heart sing, I can't get no satisfaction, but I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. Life in an evil world without Jesus is like drinking salt water when you're filled with thirst. The more you drink, the thirstier you get because there is no satisfaction. It is a futile effort. Again, quoting Spurgeon, he said, Some think that the old gospel cannot be right because everybody says it is out of date and wrong. That is one reason for being the more sure that it is right. For the world lies in the wicked one and its judgment is under his sway. But you, brothers and sisters in Christ, you and I know that we have eternal life. We know that we have answered prayer when we go before God. We know that we have victory over sin. We know that we belong to God. We know that Christ is the one true God. Is this not amazing to you? John is granting an incredible role and status to Satan in the second part of verse 19. He holds the whole world in his power. Is this your view of the world? Do you reckon with a satanic global power that influences all the world so deeply that John says the world simply is in its power? That's what we're up against. Not just to be aware of it, but to be stunned by it. Because to do otherwise is to become very vulnerable to it. This truth means that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one who is the ruler of this world. And the world is an evil place to live. And this time we live in is an evil time. In Ephesians 2.2, Paul says to the Christians who have been delivered from the dominion of darkness, you all once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. In other words, the very air we breathe, the atmosphere in which we live and move is permeated by evil. Therefore, John says the whole world is under Satan's power, especially, Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, the sons of disobedience. Those who walk in disobedience to Christ. Satan has the greatest freedom to work where the human will is most ready to disobey the will of God. Do you see the world in that way? I hope so. I know I need to strive to do better to understand the world in this way and to not love it as much as I do. Do you see that the ruler, the prince, the god of business and industry and commerce and politics and education and arts and recreation and entertainment is Satan? The whole world rests in his power. 
That is what we're up against. And we need clear, discerning judgment to know then how we are to live and work and minister. Now, all this may confuse some of you because the sovereignty of God alarm is going off in your head. And is saying, what about God? He's in charge. He's in control. He's the one that brings it all to pass. Yes, I agree. He is. And this is how amazing our God is. Even then that He has essentially handed the world over to the power of Satan, He is still saving people in the midst of evil. He is still glorifying Himself in abundance. He is keeping His people from falling away. He is building His church and preventing the gates of hell from prevailing over it. And He is using it all in His divine, eternal plan to make known His power and His glory and His purposes forevermore. But we still have a great responsibility to fight against Satan. The Word tells us that the Gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. Satan is stupefying, deadening, blinding the minds of the world. We must persevere behind the power of the Word of God and the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to overcome the effects of the evil one. And know this too. One reason the New Age fads are going to sweep many away in our day is that they are not just fads. They have real satanic power behind them. And there will be real signs and wonders worked out not by God, but by Satan. And people will be deceived. That's why Revelation 12.9 says, Satan is the deceiver of the whole world. What we are up against in our efforts as believers to advance the kingdom of Christ is a global power that touches and in some measure controls all culture and society. If we're going to make headway against the kingdom of Satan, we must fight. We must fight against our own sinful flesh. We must fight against the strongholds that He has in this world. It means being busy about the work of the Gospel. That the glory of Christ would triumph and not the efforts of Satan. It means being diligent to love our neighbors through acts of service and relationship building. It means providing and praying for global frontier missions and even going if you are called and praying that God would send you. It means living a wartime lifestyle that strips away the fluff and stays focused on the prize, the finish line that rests before the throne of God. And in the midst of all this, do you know what Satan loves the most? I think what Satan loves the most is when the people of God forget who they are and what they are commissioned by God to do. When they stop looking outward and begin looking inward to serve and love themselves while their neighbors remain in Satan's grip. 
when they stop fighting against him who is blinding the eyes of unbelievers and begin fighting each other. When the work of the gospel is halted to issue complaints and clean up messes instead of pushing forward with the purpose and joy, knowing that Christ will bless the efforts of faithful people. Satan loves it when we sit back and watch the world fall down while we tirelessly work to puff ourselves up. Brothers and sisters, let this not be said of us. And I'm afraid, in many ways, it has. I'm pleading with all of us. Let us be busy about the work of the Gospel. Let us live our lives each and every day knowing that we are involved in a cosmic war against the prince of the power of the air. And while Christ's victory is sure, we don't want to be sitting back on our heels when He returns. For to Him who much is given, much is required. We've got a lot of work to do. When you walk out of here today, you are walking into a world that is in the hold of the evil one. I pray to God that our response is an overflow of compassion, not indifference. Let us be about the work of the gospel. Lastly, very quickly, number three, we know that Jesus opened our eyes. Verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. We know that Christ has come and has given us understanding in order that we may know Him who is true. Against the Gnostic heretics who John was writing against, who claimed that they alone had the proper understanding of things, John assures his readers that through faith in Christ they can take confidence in the truths of Christianity. In Psalm 119.34, King David prayed, Give me understanding. This is that which we are indebted to Christ for. He has come and granted us understanding. He has opened our eyes that we might see Him who is true. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Understanding is the pilot and guide of the whole man. It is that faculty which sits at the stern of our souls. Our ability to be discerning, to be wise, and to walk in accordance with the treasury of God's glorious commands is all because Jesus gave us understanding to know, above all, that He is the true God and eternal life. The Christian faith is not a hindrance to intellectual activity, but rather a stimulus to right thinking. 
Whatever the world and its philosophies choose to assert, Christians know that the Son of God has come in the flesh and has endowed them with the mental faculties capable of attaining to a knowledge of the true God. The Christian certainty is not fanaticism or superstition. No, the true Christian is ready always to give an answer to every man that asks a reason concerning the hope that is in him. And by the gift of Christ, he is able to obtain an intelligent knowledge of him who is God. Has Jesus given you understanding? Has he opened your eyes that you can see and know him who is true? Perhaps the things I'm saying here this morning are foolishness to you. I pray that Jesus would open your eyes. I pray that you would have understanding to know and believe that Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life and that all other attempts at approaching God are futile. Do you think you're good enough? God's standard is perfection. And there is only one who lived perfectly. Do you think you have obeyed the law of God? The Bible tells us that if we break one law, we're guilty of the whole thing. The one whose eyes are opened, the one who has understanding, knows that he is not good enough. Knows that he has no understanding of his own. And knows that his confidence before a holy and righteous God comes not from his own accomplishments, but from Christ alone. The true believer has great hope and great assurance, not only in having Christ, but in knowing Christ, in loving Christ, in being secure in Christ. Do not be deceived by the evil one. If you do not know Christ, the one who is true, you do not have eternal life. And Christian, go away encouraged this morning. Because these things we know to be true. We will not live in a pattern of sin because we are protected by the very one who died for us who will not allow the evil one to touch us. We know that we are from God and we know that Jesus has opened our eyes so that we may know Him who is a true God and eternal life. Do not have doubt. Do not be downcast. For if you know Christ, you have understanding that leads to life and an eternal inheritance that will never pass away. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would help us, O Lord, to be assured with confidence of these great truths that we can know for sure. Help us, Lord, to measure our lives up against the truths of your word. Help us to consider our lives, to consider the sin in our lives. to see, Father, if we are walking in obedience to You. Help us to fight against the flesh. Help us, O Lord, in the battle against the prince of the power of the air. 
Help us, O Lord, to be busy about the work of the gospel as to not give Satan a stronghold, but to continue to push and to continue to fight that the gospel would be proclaimed, that Your glory would be sounded from the rooftops, and that many would come to know Christ. Father, help us to not be settled back on our heels when it comes to doing the work of the gospel. Help us to love our neighbors, to love our enemies, to love them all enough, Father, to tell them of Jesus, because we too were once enemies of You. And in Your great love, You rescued us. You called us out of darkness into light, and You caused within us belief and faith and trust in Jesus Christ, our Savior. I pray, Father, that for those in here this morning who do not know Christ, that You would awaken them, that You would open their eyes, that they would see their need to repent of their sins, to believe on the Gospel, and to walk faithfully with Jesus Christ. Father, do a great work for Your glory that we may all rejoice in what You are working We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.